0: We're going to be continuing in Ephesians 5. We're looking at verses 15 to 21 this morning. scripture's printed in your bulletin on page 4. The outline's on page 5. Give ear. This is God's Word. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. Well, I have a book at home. It's called Hope for the Flowers, and it's a fictional tale about caterpillars. These caterpillars are all trying to climb to the top of a pillar, and there's enormous amounts of caterpillars, and they're treating each other like they're stones to walk on, and they're struggling to get to the top with all their might. Well, one joins in this climb, and he's sort of the the main character in the story, and he asks everybody, "Well, why, why are we climbing? What are we doing here?" And the people who have time to answer him say, Well, we're trying to get to the top of the pillar. Why? Well, it must be good because everyone's trying to get up there. And so the caterpillar fights and claws his way and he finally gets to the top of this pillar, although he actually hates what he had to become to get to the top of the pillar. But when he gets there, there's nothing. And what's worse, the 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 illustrations of the book sort of back out. And instead of seeing this one pillar, you get a you back out and there's this field and When you look around, there's actually 50 different pillars that are exactly the same, dotting this field. And so he starts to climb back down. And as he's climbing down, he's trying to tell people, look, there's nothing up there. Well, some people are so close to the top that they are working too hard, and so they don't want to listen. Other people are accusing him of trying to keep them from getting to the top because they're jealous. They think he's trying to hoard the stuff up there at the top. And then others won't talk to him because of the evil he perpetrated against them when he was climbing over them to get to the top. And others are just jealous and don't believe him. And I think, boy, aren't aren't a lot of us in the same boat? I mean, how many of you feel like you're climbing up this pillar? You're climbing up with everyone else, but you don't really know where you're going. Or or maybe you're climbing down, and you're not exactly sure what you're going to do when you get off this pillar. Stephen Covey says, he's the guy who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, he said, we spend all our time climbing the ladder in the business world only to find out that our ladder is leaning against the wrong building. Well, our text this morning gives us a vision for what we ought to be doing with our lives. It gives us a vision for life that's meaningful, significant, and worth our time and effort. And it actually saves us. So that we can know where we're going, so we can know why we're going there, and so that we can make it. And so we're going to see, we're going to see three points this morning. Um, first, seize the day. Second, know God's will, and then third, be filled by the Spirit. So, um, if you hang around Dick for any length of time, you'll realize that what everybody needs. This is true for individuals. This is true if you are providing any sort of leadership. In the church or beyond the church, in the business world, the people what people need are they need a vision, they need a plan, and then they need fuel to get where they're going. They need a vision to know where they're going, a plan on how to get there, and then fuel to keep them filled up so that they can make it all the way to achieve that vision. And that's, that's what our three points are today. So we have seize the day, know God's plan, and be filled with the Spirit. And so first, seize the day. Verse 15 says, be very careful then how you live. And it's a call to live in wisdom. You know, how are we supposed to be careful? Well, we're supposed to live not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is is a giant theme in the Bible. Do you know people who have wisdom? Like when you think about people who have wisdom, who comes to your mind? Maybe it's someone famous. Maybe it's somebody that you know well. Life is incredibly challenging and and wisdom really is knowing how to act knowing what to do and what to say in a complicated situation okay some people say it's the skill of intelligent living right it's learning how it it sort of takes the knowledge of the world it takes the knowledge of people the knowledge of yourself knowledge of god and it sort of mixes them all up and What wisdom does is it takes these different principles, these different truths, the things that we know, and it brings them together so that you'll know exactly what to do in every situation. Okay, that's what wisdom is. It's a skill of living. So for some examples, thinking about last week's sermon on sexual immorality and sexual sin, it takes wisdom to know how to apply those principles in a dating relationship. Right? It takes wisdom to know how do you govern the, the principles of purity with the ever-increasing commitment of a serious dating relationship. Thinking about how do you, how do you act as a good friend towards someone who's engaging in self-destructive behavior. Right? That takes wisdom. There's not a simple solution. You need to take three or four, maybe more, principles that come to us from the world, from God's Word. Bring them together so that you know when to say something, when not to say something. Think about politics, right? How do you decide political issues? Where do you stand on issues? It takes wisdom to know how to do that. And so wisdom comes when we sort of get the world. People who are wise just understand how the world is. If you read the book of Proverbs, sometimes you see things in the book of Proverbs that don't make you real happy, you know, that money actually can buy the heart of a king, right? That's not, a, that's not good. But it's true. It's how the world works. And so wisdom is an understanding of how the world works. And what's interesting is that when we get wisdom, we end up lining up and we're able to function more effectively in the world. And I think wisdom actually is one of the things that makes Christianity different, you know, and different from religion. Because religion tends to be not wisdom, but rules, right? Here's a list of things that you have to do, a list of things that you don't have to do or things that you can't do. Um, religion ends up being a, you know, something that's constructed where you have to blindly follow it and you never think for yourself. You're just obeying rules. But what Christianity does, it says, wait a second, yeah, there are rules, but you need to take the principles of Scripture and learn how to apply them in your life. And I think a lot of people who don't get this, there are churches, unfortunately, that don't seem to understand this very well, and they end up trying to put forth sort of a a list of rules that just don't fit with the way the world is, and not not, not necessarily in a... I mean, there are things that are always going to be different between the world and between the church, but there are sometimes you know and maybe you've been part of ministries or churches that that really just don't get this connection very well where they need to learn how to contextualize that's the word that we use we take the truths of scripture we contextualize them for San Diego you know what are the truths of the gospel that can most powerfully impact our city our community our family our neighbors our loved ones and that's kind of the point right that's where we're going when paul says to live very carefully as wise the point is that we're trying to figure out how do we bring God's love and God's power into San Diego. And to do that, we need wisdom. We do that, we need to live intentionally. And Paul says that is, again, the point. Verse verse 16, he says, Making the most of every opportunity. We're called to redeem the time. Okay, that's the vision that God paints for us. We're called to redeem the time. This is our mission. We're called by God as a community, as a family, to bring God's power and His redemption to this time, to this city, now. And we do that by making the most of every opportunity. It's like finding a treasured piece of furniture at a garage sale, or in a consignment shop or an antique shop, where you know the pr- you look at the price tag and you kind of you get a little bit nervous because it's probably five hundred dollars cheaper than it should be. The owner clearly doesn't know what it is. You buy that piece of furniture. Maybe it's dusty and old and sort of it needs a little bit of work, so you buy that piece of furniture at a ridiculously low price. You bring it home, you fix it up, you clean it up, and then you put its glory you set it out. And it's like you're putting its glory on display. That's what it means to make the most of every opportunity. You can buy up, as it were. Moments of your life, days, hours, weeks, appointments, meetings, relationships. You buy these things up so that you can devote it to the Lord. You ask yourself, how can I use this day? How can I use this situation to bring honor to God, to express our devotion to Him, to help others, to build friendships and community? That's how we seize the day. We make the most of every moment. And this is the kingdom. This is how God's kingdom grows. It's God's people living in God's world, following God's way, shining God's light. Okay? And it sometimes has to do with the things that we say. But as we saw last week, so often it also has to do with the things that we do. It's how we act, how we treat other people. And there's some pretty good examples. If you start looking back in church history, Philip Melanchthon was one of the disciples of Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation. And at the end of his day, he would actually go to the Lord and repent of every moment that he wasted. So, you know, and if you really want to feel guilty about this area of how you're spending your time and uh, and, and not maximizing your opportunities, do a Google search for um, Jonathan Edwards resolutions. Okay, Jonathan Edwards was around in the early 1700s, and he wrote these 70 resolutions when he was like 19 years old. And. His resolutions are so convicting because he was intentionally trying to make the most of every single opportunity. Now, one author said this. I think this is helpful. He said, verse 16, this verse we're looking at, to redeem the time, to make the most of every opportunity, can, of course, lead people into an obsessive lifestyle. And that's how some of you were feeling as I was just talking about that. Like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? I get this from my job. I get this from my spouse. You know, that I'm never, I'm wasting all my time. I'm not ever doing the right things. And now I'm going to get this at church? All right, well, so here you go. This one's for you. Um, Verse 16 can lead people to an obsessive lifestyle, calculating and counting every minute and giving oneself and everyone else no peace. Now, if that's a particular danger for you, then take note and learn how to relax, how to rest, and how to let go of your over-organized life and allow God to bathe you in his peace. Amen. That's right. Psalm one twenty seven two. it's vain to rise up early and go to bed late. God's gift to those he loves is sleep. I have to remind myself of that every Saturday night. Okay, and then the quote goes on. But for many people, the danger is on the other side of not taking each day and hour as a gift from God to be used for his glory but instead letting the days and hours wash over and pass by like water down a river, never used, never to return. For such people, verse 16, is a wake-up call. These are evil times we live in, and you as a child of light have a chance to do something about it. You as a child of light have a chance to do something about it. Take that chance with both hands and make the most of the time. And that's the reason, right? The reason Paul gives here is in verse 16, because the days are evil. I think we all recognize sort of that experience of feeling like we're not, we're always distracted. We're never really focused on the things that we're supposed to be doing. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like there's got to be something out there that sort of sets its will against you to keep you from doing the things you ought to be doing and filling your time up with all of these unimportant and urgent things that seem to vie for all your time? I mean, do you feel that way? Well, if you feel that way, that's good because there is. There is a force that sets its will against you. There is a force in the world that's trying to keep you from being productive, that's trying to keep you from being successful, trying to keep you from seizing the day and making the most of your your days and hours. Paul says the days are evil. And if you read through this letter, just this short letter, you can see where this evil power comes from. We're going to be looking at it later in chapter 6. But there are evil powers in this world that God wants us to overcome. And so this is what we need to do. We need to live wisely, carefully, intentionally. That's God's vision for us. But how? Right? How? How do we do this? What are the steps toward having achieving that vision? Well, again, there's sort of two ways to answer the how question. Sometimes you ask how because you don't know what to do, and that's where you need to plan. And then other times you say, well, how am I going to do this? Because you need the fuel, right? How am I going to have the strength to do this? And those are our next two points, the plan and the fuel. Our second point is the plan. And the plan is to know God's will. This is how you make the most of every opportunity. And Paul says here, this is verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so we line up first by not being foolish. And it's interesting because... The Bible talks about the fool a lot, and the design of that, I don't think, it's, it's not designed to insult us, okay? The Bible's not saying, you're a fool, you're an idiot, can't cheat your life together. No, I think it's meant to, it's, it's really meant to warn us against acting foolishly. And so this is for both Christians and non-Christians, because reality is that we both struggle with this. We're both susceptible to living foolishly, and so we've got to be careful. Proverbs is a good place to go on foolishness. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says you want to be careful not to get to the point where you can't be taught by others, where you can't listen to other people. It says fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, so if you're at a place where you're unwilling to listen to people outside of you, where you're not letting other people speak into your life, where you're not giving other people a chance to 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 be another perspective, then you're walking down the road toward foolishness. You want to avoid that. Right? You want to avoid that. Proverbs 7 talks about the reality of temptation, and it's foolish to give in to temptation without a fight. Okay, if you are just a sucker for temptation, I, I read a quote by um, Mae West. I, I don't know if she died this week or what, but there were about seven or eight quotes in the, in the Union Tribune this week. They were just some of her famous quotes, and she said, oh, I don't struggle with temptation at all as long as it stays away. <laughs> there you go. Um, Proverbs 12 says that fools think that they're right in their own eyes. And so we've got to be careful, right? We've got to be careful. Again, this is sort of related to getting the perspective of others. We need to be careful to think that our evaluation and our affirmation of ourselves is all we need. Okay? We need to be, we need to be listening to each other. You know, and really, so this is this idea of not being foolish, it's kind of a rehearsal of this whole old lifestyle that Paul's been talking about from chapter 4 on. He's saying we're putting aside the foolish things, and we're trying to learn what the will of God is. And so that's sort of the second half of knowing God's will. You actually have to know God's will. You put off foolishness, and then you learn God's will. And there's so much talk about this. I mean, we could do a sermon series just on how do you find the will of God in your life, right? Some people think that God's will is this hidden mystery that you can discover only if you undergo a spiritual regiment that's way too complicated or way too difficult for anybody to do. Right. It's almost like one of the the old Kung Fu movies where the person who gets beat up, you know, crosses over mountains and rivers and through valleys and through snow to find that that Kung Fu guru. Right. Who can who can teach them the secret move and they can go back and they can, you know, triumph. You know, well, a lot of people think that's how you find God's will. You have to go over the river, through the woods, through the snow, uphill and in this crazy way. And and people feel like they, they, they live in fear because they don't know, am I living in God's will or not? Well, it's not supposed to be that complicated. Okay, God's will is not supposed to be something that we can't find. And In fact, Deuteronomy 30 says, um, these things aren't too hard for you. It's not up in heaven that you should say, who's going to go up and get it for us and bring it down? It's not across the sea that we should say, well, who's going to go across the sea and bring it back to us? No, it's near you. It's near you. God's will is revealed, and it's clearly revealed in Scripture. Okay, and so let me, I mean, again, we can go through this in much more, in great detail. We can talk more about it in the question and answer time following the service. Let me just give you some of the high points. God's will, first and foremost, is that you know him. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires that all people come to know him, that all people would be saved. And so God's will, first and foremost, is that you know him. Okay, then God's will is that you be filled with His power and His presence. We're going to see that in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. And then God wants you to be growing and maturing. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification is the term for your growth in holiness, your becoming holy, becoming more what God wants you to be. God's will is also that you be a blessing in society. Do you know that? 1 Peter 2, verse 15, says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's will is that you suffer, which is a harder one to understand, um, but it's certainly true. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then God also wants you to be saying thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5. 16, 17, 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so God wants you saved. He wants you spirit-filled. He wants you saying thanks. He wants you sanctified. That's God's will for each and every one of you. Well, then what next, right? Right? What job should I take? What's God's will for my work? What's God's will for my education? What's God's will for my parenting style? What's God's will for how many children should I have? What's God's will for my career? Well, if you're doing these things that we just listed, if you're going through and you're checking these things off, then you can do whatever you want. Then you can do whatever you want. If you know God and are growing in relationship with Him, if you are practicing holiness and you're saying, thanks for all things, then you can do whatever you want. Why? Well, if you're doing those things, who's going to be in control of what you want? God. Psalm 37.4 says it simply, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so this is where you start. You start here with Scripture, with the will of God, and then you stay connected, right? And what's interesting is that um, you can then decide to follow your heart's desire. How do you want to bring redemption into San Diego, right? How do you want to serve your family, your community? How do you want to be a blessing to society in terms of how you work? How do you want to... Make decisions about whether you're going to be married, how many children will you have, whether or not you're going to have children. God says, essentially what God says is, look, if you are in love with me and you're growing with me, then you can choose whatever your heart's desire and I will be with you no matter what. It's like, I mean, it's hard because in one sense, like I want to say it real strongly and say, you know what, if you're doing these things, God doesn't care what you do but that's not really the point because he does care what you do, not because he has one particular thing he wants you to do versus another, but because God is basically saying, look, whatever you choose to do, I will be with you right next to you, right beside you, right behind you, and if you make a bad decision, I'll be there then, and I'll pick you up, and I'll dust you off. You can't go anywhere apart from my will is what he's saying when you're in a relationship with me. And so... Now when you get into these other questions about how do you you know how, how do you orchestrate the different things or how do you make decisions in life guess what you need you need wisdom right so we're back to point 1 you need wisdom right and that's why Paul says don't live foolishly but understand what the will of the Lord is because it's wrapped around wisdom okay so really in a sense for I think for a lot of you, this may be, well, for some of you, this will have a dramatic change. When you think about what is God's revealed will in Scripture for you, it will affect everything about you. And it'll affect the things that you do. It'll affect the kinds of ways that you talk. It'll affect your relationships. Because you'll bring them in the line with what God has revealed his will for you is. But then for some of you, you may not change all the things that you're doing, but you'll be able to more easily connect them to the will of God. You'll be able to, with more confidence, say, you know what? I'm doing this because it's an expression of what I'd like to do as I have a relationship with God. Out of the fullness of my relationship with God, I'm going to pursue this, and I know God is with me. And so what's neat is that it will take some of the things that you're already doing, and it will make them connect to God's will. And again, we can talk more about that in the Q&A time if you want to chase me down on that. So... Again, so we've seen the vision that we want to bring redemption to our city, to our community, to our families, to our loved ones. The plan is that we need to follow God's will, both what he's revealed in Scripture, and then as we live in relationship with him, we follow the desires of our hearts. But what keeps us going? What fills your tank? How do you keep motivated along this road? How do you keep from feeling like you ended up jumping onto a religious rat race where You're feeling guilty all the time because you think there's something that you should be doing and you're not doing. Well, that's point three. The fuel comes in point three where we are filled by the Spirit. Paul says, be filled by the Spirit in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And Paul has to talk about this because he knows there are competing opinions. And there were competing opinions in Paul's day about where do you get the fuel? And for some people, they would want to say, well, the way that you get your tanks filled is to pursue pleasure, right? To pursue idleness, to relax. And what Paul is saying here, first and foremost, is he says, look, don't get drunk. Okay, don't be filled with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit And what he's saying is that, look, he's saying wine is not going to fuel you on this road to making the most use of your time, okay? Wine does fill, right? Wine does provide an incredible amount of consolation. It can help us forget our troubles. I mean, there's all kinds of things that wine can do, but those things won't lead us down the road that leads to redemption, that leads to making the most use of every opportunity, And so I want to say, like, as we talk about wine, look, the use of wine takes wisdom. Okay, Scripture actually has both a positive and a negative view of wine. Okay, in Scripture, it teaches that wine is a wonderful gift of God to people. Right, It's, it's almost like sex from last week. Sex is this amazing gift. It's a gift from God to his creation, to his people. But we have to be careful how we use it. So Scripture says on the positive side, wine makes the heart glad. It says that wine consoles those who are suffering, and it's an appropriate enhancement to celebrations. But then on the negative side, wine and drunkenness also can lead to great evil. And the Scriptures are replete with examples of that, but I think for us, I mean, we don't have to go very far, do we, to see this? You know, I think most of us know people whose lives have spiraled out of control. People have lost their jobs, they've lost their houses, they've lost... Their money, their, their marriages, they've lost their family, their children, they've lost any sort of connection to a meaningful life because of abusing alcohol. You know, And again, here at Harbor, we talk about sort of things that, that are good gifts that become ultimate things in our lives, right? And when something like wine that's a gift becomes an ultimate thing and we order our life around it and we end up bowing down and serving it, it becomes an idol, it becomes another God, it becomes a form of worship. You know, and if, if anything is made ultimate, and so this can be wine, this can be sex, you know, anything that we pursue, it could be leisure, it could be recreation, it could be these things. If we live for the opportunity to do nothing, we have to be careful. These things will end up controlling us. And when it comes to wine and alcohol, we see authority gets abused, we see that real love. Is gone. There's no real love, and the darkness grows with drunkenness. What's interesting about this is that the context that Paul is talking about here, he's not focusing on the social evils of drunkenness in this passage. Now, his focus is actually religious. He's talking about worship. He's talking about worship because to the Ephesians, here's a quote. To the Ephesians, drunkenness was closely associated with the idolatrous rites and practices that were an integral part of temple worship. In the mystery religions of Paul's day, the height of religious experience was communion with the gods through various forms of ecstasy. To achieve ecstatic experience, the participants would use frenzied dances designed to work themselves up into a high emotional pitch. Heavy drinking and sexual orgies contributed still further into sensuality that led the participants to think they were creating communion with the gods. The Da Vinci Code, I think, brings out a lot of this. If you read that book by Dan Brown um, some years ago, you get a real clear picture into the kind of Um, into the kind of ways that that other religions would would use to generate this sense of an emotional or this spiritual connection. Um, And so what Paul is saying here is that you don't want to use wine to be the thing that gives you that spiritual experience in worship. He's saying the kind of worship that you were used to in your old way of life shouldn't characterize the worship in your new way of life. And so even today, we need to be careful that our experiences, that we don't artificially generate experiences and say that that's communion with God. And so Paul's answer here is, instead of being drunk with wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. Right? Be filled with the Spirit. That is how we are empowered. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit or filled by the Spirit? Well, it means... Receiving God's presence. This is actually the third time in this letter that Paul has talked about being filled with God. Okay, He says that we're filled with the fullness of Christ in chapter 1. In chapter 3, Paul talks about being filled up to the fullness of God. And now here he's saying that we need to be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? Well, this is the most amazing thing about Christianity, is that God himself, not just that he loves us, and will be near us. Not just that He'll go alongside of us or behind us as we make decisions in life, but that God actually comes to live in us. That we have His presence in us. That God Himself, and and what's amazing about that isn't, I mean, there's a connection there of love and and, and fatherly relationship that, that blows my mind. But when God comes and fills us, It's infectious, right? We become like him, right? That's the point of the Lord's Supper. We take the body and the blood of Jesus because we need to be filled by him. We need his character. We need his righteousness to certainly wash us off, to wash us and cleanse us free, you know, to be free of our sins, but then to fill us with his strength and his power. And so that's what Paul, that's what Paul's saying here. Being filled with or filled by the spirit, it means being filled with your inheritance, With this new life, this whole letter is a testimony to the inheritance that you have when you believe in Jesus. Being filled means to be completely controlled by what fills you. To be completely controlled. And so the image, this word is used to describe the way that the wind fills a sail and carries a ship along. That's what the Spirit does. When you are filled with the Spirit, you are carried along by the presence of God. You are carried along by the power of God, by the love of God, and I know for some of you, just thinking about this, just hearing about this, the Spirit is actually filling you right now, because you're feeling this sense of, oh yeah, that's in me, oh yeah, that's what it means. Oh, I'd I've, I've forgotten <laughs> that I'm filled with the Spirit, and that's what it means. Now, so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is? How do we do this? How do we get filled with the Spirit? Well, it's interesting because. Here's a little bit of grammar for you. This is in the passive. Paul doesn't say fill yourself with the Spirit, but he says be filled with the Spirit. That's passive, right? Not something you can do to yourself, but something that has to happen to you. But it's a command, right? Be filled with the Spirit, so you are responsible. So basically, Paul is saying that you are responsible for something to happen that you can't make happen. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? How do you do it? How do you get filled by the spirit? You know what? That's a great way by reading your Bible. Boy, that's good, you know, and in fact, isn't that what we did a minute ago, right? We said, what's God's will? Well, we looked in Scripture. We looked up the verses. This is all I did. I looked up the word, the verses that have the word will and God in it, and there was a bunch of them that didn't apply. But yeah, so the Scripture tells you what the will of God is, and if you want, I mean, what's amazing is that there's a parallel passage in Colossians where Paul says just about exactly the same thing as he says here in Colossians 3.16. He says this, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Right, That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. And when we let Scripture help us understand what Scripture means, what we're seeing is that the way to be filled with the Spirit is to fill yourself with the Word of Christ. It's to be filled with the Word of Christ. Now, and it's, you know, what Paul says there is, a wor- is it's the word of Christ. And I don't want to parse this too finely, but essentially this is another way of saying you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself, not just, I mean, maybe the genealogies aren't really going to make you feel connected to God, right? Maybe there's certain parts of the scripture that aren't going to be as closely drawing you into God's presence. And so you want to think through, well, what is it that really resonates with you? You know, for some of you, it's 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 remembering the good news that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, and died the death that you should have died, so that you can go free. You know, for others of you, maybe it's that that you are truly and really a child of God. For others, it's that um, it's that God has actually put His Spirit in you when you believed, and that He has filled you with His presence. That just remembering that truth alone helps you to be filled with the spirit what's interesting is that as we let god speak to us through his word it controls our thinking and it controls our actions and more of our thinking will will be will be more in line with what god is doing in the world more of our thinking more of the ways that we interact with other, more of our speech will begin to be influenced and seasoned by god and his word and as we devote ourselves as we fill ourselves with god's word We become filled with the Spirit. It's the promises of God. And so this is, again, this is the difference. It's not that if you read the Bible, you know, for a certain amount of time, a certain number of days of the week, then you can be a guaranteed sure that, I mean, because we can screw this up, right? We can screw up reading the Bible, can't we? You know, how many times have you read thinking, oh, I guess I have to read? You know, and you pull your Bible out and you read a little bit, and you go, all right, I guess that was it. And you pray, God, thanks for this. I don't really understand it, but, you know, and and you, you leave maybe more hardened even, not even better, but hardened than, than, you know, than you were before you sat down. But the idea here is that there are rich truths about what God has done for you if you believe in Jesus, what God is doing in you if you believe in Jesus, and what he will do through you because you believe in Jesus. When you bring those promises and figure out what is it that really makes me feel like, God, how can I serve you? What are the truths that really get you to that place? where it doesn't matter what God wants you to do, you'll do it, right? You want to identify those truths, and to be filled with the Spirit, you want to remind yourself of those truths, okay? That's how this works. One author said this, The Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit can be compared to a glove. Unless it's filled by a hand, the glove is powerless and useless. It's designed to do work, but it can do no work by itself. It works only as the hand controls and uses it. The glove's work is only the hand's work. It doesn't ask the hand to give it an assignment and then try to complete the assignment without the hand. Nor does it gloat or brag about what it used to do because it knows the hand deserves all the credit. This is us. When we are filled with the Spirit, we end up wanting to love God. We end up wanting to love our neighbors. We end up wanting to be and do all that God has for us. Now, again, what's interesting is that, remember, this is Paul talking about worship. Okay, and so one of the ways for us to get filled with the Spirit, okay, is to do what I call the upward spiral of worship. We want to cultivate the upward spiral of worship. And so Paul lists here sort of what things we can do to make sure we're staying filled, right? He says, first, singing, singing, verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. And so singing, whether aloud or in your heart, in Paul's mind, was an excellent way of actually practicing the faith. You know, if you don't want your garden to grow weeds, you need to plant good plants there. And so Paul is saying, fill your heart, fill your mind with Scripture songs, with the songs that we sing on Sunday. I mean, this is the power of, the, of singing. Singing lifts our hearts. It gets us emotionally connected sometimes beyond what words alone can do. That's the power of singing. That's one of the gifts that God has given to the church, is singing. And what's amazing is that we're doing this to one another, right? Singing isn't just entertainment, but singing is one of the best ways that we're telling each other about our faith. And we're reminding each other what we've committed to. We're reminding each other who we are as a family of God. And so it's not inappropriate to look around while you're singing. I mean, it's true that in, in, well, actually, in some of the songs reflect that. In some of the songs we sing, we're directly singing to God. And we're telling him how much we love him, how much we praise him. But there are other songs where we're literally talking to each other. And so look for those things. I mean, it's just, it heightens this notion of the fact that we do this in community. We do this in community. So part of that upward spiral, part of the reason we sing on Sundays is because singing lifts our hearts up and it fills us with the Spirit. And the second thing Paul says is saying thanks, right? Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, one of the most amazing things that hit me again today, and I knew it I was I wasn't looking for it, but it hit me because I knew I was going to preach about this, is that I'm amazed that every week, no matter what kind of week I've gone through, no matter what I've seen, no matter what I've experienced, no matter how bad my week has been, how frustrated I am, how irritated and, and just in a bad place I am, that the songs by themselves, I mean there's other elements of the service also, but that the songs Give me reasons to be thankful. You know, and it's not that we ignore the pain and the hurt that we experience. It's not that we ignore the darkness that's in all of our lives, but there are things that we can be thankful for always. Always. You know, one author described it kind of as the rungs of a ladder, right? That the bottom rung of Thanksgiving is thanking God for your blessings, the ones you have. And then the next rung is thanking God for the blessings that are going to come. And then that third rung is being able to thank God in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the impossible situation. When we do that, I heard one preacher say that God gets big and the problem gets small. And so we're filled with thanksgiving. And then the last thing Paul says, verse 21, is that we submit to each other. We submit to each other. We learn how to have relationships where it's not all about us, right? And this is all part of corporate worship. It's all part of Sunday. He's saying this is what should characterize your worship. It's not being imbibed with experience and drugs or alcohol or sex. It's being filled with God's spirit, which produces, it puts a song on your heart. It puts thankfulness in your heart. And then it makes you look around and say, how can I love these people? How can I submit my time, my talent, my abilities, my care, my concern, my ears to others that are here? How can I care about somebody here on a Sunday? How can I care? And, and so Paul says submitting to one another. And I guess the, the thing I want to say about this is that this is Paul talking about worship and what should characterize worship and how the worship in, in Christ's church ought to be. But what's amazing is that Sunday worship for us sets the tone for the rest of the week. Okay? What we do here, this is how we start our weeks, right? The first thing you do every new week is you come into the presence of God and you worship Him and you're with the body, and what goes on here on Sunday morning sets the tone. Okay, the the order of our service by itself sort of sets a pattern for how to relate to God. He calls. First, right, we respond. We sing His praises, and then we confess. He assures us that we're forgiven. And then He strengthens us with His Word, and then the supper, and then He sends us back out, right, into the world. Well, you can do that every morning as you seek the Lord at the beginning. of it. That sets the tone for your relationship with God, and then it sets the tone for the rest of us or for the rest of the week, right? How are you going to stay filled with the Spirit? You've got to be connected to the Lord, song on your heart, living in community. Right? I mean there's no hope outside of that. Right? We all live unbelievably dry weeks when our when Monday morning comes and we've completely forgotten Sunday. And so even though Paul is talking about worship, what he's saying is that worship dictates the rest of your life. Right? And the neat thing is that all you need is strength for six more days. Right? You don't have to get that far, right? Because every seventh day, the first day of every week, this is why we bring you in. This is why it says, don't forsake the assembly together, but come together and worship. Why? Because this is what you need. This is what you need. You need to connect to God. You need to connect to each other so that you go from here. This is the only way to bring the light into San Diego. This is the only way to make the most of every opportunity. It's if you're filled with the presence of God that comes through his word, the singing, the fellowship, the serving. And so in a sense, you want to ask yourself, what is it? about Sundays that really gets you charged. Because for some of you, maybe it's the sermon. For some of you, it's the singing. For some of you, it's really just the flow of worship, right? For others, it's actually the time before and after where you're seeing people, you're talking to them. For others of you, it's really the fact that you can come and you can set up and you can tear down at the end and clean up right? It's, it's that you're serving, you're doing stuff behind the scenes. And for some of you, that gets you absolutely charged. And so you want to think through what is it that really connects with you? And then you want to cultivate that through the week, because that's the way that God fills you with his spirit, right? That's how you are being filled with the spirit. And if that's what happens for you on Sunday, then you want to cultivate that again throughout the week. And so that's the fuel. That's the fuel. It's God himself who fuels us, He comes and lives in us and He transforms us. And so if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian yet, maybe you haven't thought through this vision for trying to make San Diego more the way God wants it to be, more the way that life was intended to be. Uh, Maybe you don't have a plan for how you can make the most of your time. Or maybe you just lack fuel. Paul's call here I mean, this is what's amazing, is that Paul's call here is a call to Jesus. Believing in Jesus really does connect to all these things. Listen to this. Because Jesus emptied himself to the point of giving his own life, he is able to fill us with everything of which he emptied himself, including life. We deserve humiliation, but in Christ we receive glory. We deserve to be hated, but instead we're loved. We deserve dishonor, but instead we receive honor. For what can we not give thanks? For what can we not give thanks? It's because of Jesus. He makes this possible. It's his death for us that takes away the things that keep us from living this kind of life. And then it's his own life that comes and dwells in us. If you believe in him this morning, if you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm sorry for my sins. Then he will, we've seen the rest of Ephesians, he will come, he will fill you with his spirit and he will transform you in every way. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. There is so much to be thankful for. Thank you for giving us every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you for changing us. God, we used to be in darkness, and Unfortunately, we still sometimes linger in the darkness, but you have brought us into the light. And God, even through your word right now, you have brought us more clearly into the light. You've let that light shine on us. You've emblazoned your spirit on us. And I know many of us have been filled afresh with your spirit. God, help us to walk in this. And as we understand how we connect to you, God, let that set the tone for the rest of our week. Help us to live filled with your spirit. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen.